please be aware that this is for professional investors only. A very good morning. It's Wednesday, the 8th of July, 2020. And as usual, there's a few uh, quick points I want to make. First of all, if you need a translation, there's a button below um, and you have a number of choices there. Um, also, if you have questions, we have a Q&A button that you can select and you can put your questions there. Someone will get back with an answer if we don't manage to address it today. And finally, you can also send us your emails uh, via nordiafunds at nordia.com. Right, well, as usual, we start the session today with a, a macro piece. And today I'm pleased to have Stephen Friedman with me. Stephen is a senior uh, economist and he is chair of the Fixed Income Investment Policy Committee at Mackay Shields. Steve, are you there? Can you hear me? Yes, I am there. Good morning. Hi, how are you? I am very well. How are you? Yeah, all good. Thank you. All good. So, um, Steve, you've got an interesting background. You actually uh, worked for 15 years um, at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. So I was just wondering if you've been surprised by um, how aggressive the response has been from the Fed in, in response to, to the COVID uh, issues that yes, we're having. Yes. Yeah, and it, it certainly has been an aggressive response. Uh, to be honest, I, I haven't been surprised. Um, having worked there during the financial crisis, I think some of the lessons that they learned in that episode was that you really have to think ahead as to how a crisis is going to unfold, and then you have to act proactively and aggressively to limit the damage. And I think that's precisely what the Fed has done. I think they realized quite early on that this was a very unique crisis. This is one in which households, corporations, even state and local governments were going to experience a cash crunch, if you will. They would experience a, a shortfall in cash flow, and they were then trying to do whatever they could to offset that effect. So as you know, the Fed typically provides a safety net in terms of a lender of last resort role to the banking sector. Well, what the Fed has done is that they've expanded that safety net so that it now includes highly rated corporations and state and local governments. And I think these steps have helped prevent an even worse economic crisis and have helped prevent this crisis from also turning into a financial market crisis. And then they've been very aware of the um, challenges that households would face as well. And they've designed programs to try to incentivize banks to lend to households. So I think it has been an aggressive response I think it's been an appropriate one as well. Yeah. So right now we're hearing a lot of news coming out of the U.S. about um, a surge in sort of new coronavirus cases in various states, which in part, I guess, is, is due to the fact that you're lifting restrictions uh, that were in place before. Um, so we've got these two opposing economic factors, if you like. And I just wondered how you think this might play out. Yeah. So I think at the end of the day, what we have to conclude for the U.S. is that so far we've, we've done a, a fairly poor job of getting this virus under control. And I think that's because um, some states and also individuals uh, fail to take social distancing as seriously as they should. 
and the same for stay-at-home orders. And many, many states reopened their economies too early, and we're now dealing with the consequences of that. And I always thought that the economic recovery would really be dictated by uh, the, the virus itself. And I think we can only conclude now with cases rising in the U.S. and now half of the country living in states that are, again, restricting movements or, or halting or reopening plans, that there will be an economic cost to that. That will slow the pace of recovery. So yes, we will still have a recovery. It's just going to be a fitful one. And this is something that I've actually expected all along, though I have to say the surge in cases has happened earlier than I anticipated. Yeah. So how likely is it then that we'll see further fiscal stimulus? Because I, mean, I know that's on the agenda potentially for later this month, but uh, I think you know, the, the talk was just to wait and see uh, before making a final decision. What, what do you think is likely to happen at, you know, going forward next mm. few weeks? I think it's very likely that we get another round of fiscal support before Congress goes on their, their summer recess. And I think that support will again be aimed at supporting household income and also at uh, providing funds to state and local governments. And I think one of the reasons we'll have this additional uh, fiscal support is that the initial programs were designed with the belief that this would be a very, very brief crisis and that there was a potential for a V-shaped recovery. And as that no longer seems to be the case, there is a growing recognition that additional uh, fiscal support is necessary. And in an election year, I think it's uh, in the interest of both parties to get behind uh, an additional package. So we've, we've seen the impact of this, this huge monetary stimulus that we were talking about right at the beginning um, by the Federal Reserve on Wall Street, and, and we've seen that uh, in the markets. But what's the impact of the government fiscal policy having on, on Main Street? Uh, uh, the fiscal policy itself? Yeah. Uh, so I think what it, it's really succeeded in doing is, is helping to prevent some, to, sorry, helping to um, offset some of that lost cash flow for businesses and for households. So yeah. for example, we had the um, um, payroll support program that provided funds to businesses, um, which they could then use uh, to keep workers on their, on their payrolls. And very, very importantly, we had the rebate checks to households and expanded uh, benefit packages as well for the unemployed. And that's really served to support household income. When I first saw the, the graph that we were just showing there, um, it didn't look too impressive until I looked at the left-hand side where you see it's in trillions. <laughs> so uh, the slightest little movement here makes a huge difference. Exactly, and I think that, that that's a very important point. And I think that graph is really a great illustration of what fiscal policy can do. So those two blue areas represent uh, inflows to households that are represented as positives. And the dark blue is basically wages and uh, rental income and income on assets. And yes, it's hard to see, but that did decline in recent months. But the light blue is the offset being provided by the government uh, in terms of those support programs directly to households. Um, and that's helped support uh, household spending, which is shown here as a negative because it's a cash outflow. Um, so household spending has declined, but, it, but that fiscal support has made sure that that decline hasn't been too significant. The result of that is that the savings rate, which is that gray line, has actually risen. So households are actually, in the aggregate, fairly flush with cash, so that it should support household spending and the economy overall once we get through this new rough patch that the economy uh, and the health crisis is facing.
Great. So uh, we'll come to the to the takeaways now. Um, so I think yeah we have a slide on this. Um, so if we just quickly talk through the various takeaways. So we're seeing new outbreaks. Um, there will probably be more going forward. Uh, that will constrain economic activity uh, for sure. Um, and that points to you know this sluggish uh, recovery and not really a V-shape so much uh, as perhaps a U. But is that your base case? Yes, it, it is a recovery. We have, in a sense, started a new economic cycle after a sharp, a very short contraction. Growth will be picking up in the months ahead, but until the virus is really under control and people and businesses feel safe returning to normal, it tells you that it's going to be a somewhat fitful and, and slow recovery. And I think it will take probably about two years to recover all the lost output and get GDP back to the same level it was at the beginning of the year. Yeah, and as, as you say, I mean, this is, this is a gradual process of, of picking up to the second point here, you know, picking up the stay at home um, orders as, as that's uh, gradually relaxed. Hopefully people will become more confident and, and uh, consumer spending will start to, to go up. Um, and then the fiscal response has, uh, has so far supported uh, income and spending. And yep. you expect that to continue? I do. I, I do expect uh, that to continue. I think there's a very strong commitment on the policy side. I think it will come in, in waves as well. <coughs> Excuse me. We have this new round of stimulus that I expect uh, to be signed over the next month or so. That might just take us through the end of the year and Congress, a new Congress next year, potentially with a new administration, will have to think about additional stimulus uh, for the year ahead for 2021. Excellent. Well, I think uh, we, we leave it there. Thanks for your time, Steve, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Um, yes, hopefully. Yep. Yeah. So I'm going to pass over now to, to Joe Campwell. Joe is head of corporate credit and he's co-head of the Global Fixed Income Group at Mackay Shields. Uh, Joe, are you there? Can you hear me? I can, Paul. Good morning. Hi, good morning. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Oh, I'm excellent. Thank you. So, in English, we have a saying. We, we <laughs> say that we paint the town red, which means, you know, when we go out and party, we go to the bar, we go to a restaurant, <laughs> we go to a club. Um, and when you were at college, I hear that you literally painted the town red. So maybe you could start telling us about that. Well, maybe not the whole town, Paul, but uh, a group of my friends and I, um, the summer before going to college, decided to paint houses. Um, and specifically, we were looking for um, to paint the exteriors of, of houses because painting the inside was um, something we were a little bit scared of doing, uh, given that we were young kids and we didn't want to ruin anyone's homes. So while we did paint for... Um, two summers, we were really painting the exteriors. And one of the things that I learned is that I really didn't want to be outside in the sweltering New Jersey heat, um, painting houses for the rest of my life. So I really got an appreciation for what I call indoor work there. <laughs> You've been indoor ever since, have you? Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so we've just been discussing the, this massive monetary and, and fiscal stimulus that's, that's been underway um, to fight the, the COVID crisis. Um, and on top of that, we've, we've got a situation where, you know, the U.S. credit markets, um, you know, valuations are very supportive right now. 
all of that probably I would imagine makes it very difficult for you because you're known for your downside management and, and you know, philosophy of, sort of winning by not losing. And I just wondered, you know, if we could talk a little bit about that and, and how you're managing that in this situation. That's a great question, Paul, because we really do seek to provide downside protection during every part of the economic cycle. And a key way that we actually approach um, constructing portfolios is really to look at cutting off the left tail of the distribution. And the easiest way to think about this is if you have a high yield bond, we're looking to avoid those bonds that go to 30, 40, or 50 cents on the dollar from par. And we really believe that if you can do this effectively, what happens is that the expected return of the portfolio will actually go up while you're taking less risk. And that's a, this is a very good outcome. Now, the key for this type of environment is really around compensation. You know, as you can see, one of our key goals is to eliminate uncompensated risk. And uh, the compensation for risk today is actually relatively attractive in a historical context, and certainly more attractive than it was six months ago. And, you know, if you look at it, you know, from a historical perspective, they're actually, the credit markets are actually pretty cheap. And um, the equity markets, uh, on the other hand, maybe are, you know, closer to all time highs. So we think that this is actually a relatively easy environment for us to be adding risk back into portfolios. So you just you just touched on something that perhaps we can pick up now because you mentioned that you're adding risk to portfolios. I was I was assuming that you've you've made changes uh, over the last six months. Uh, we find <laughs> ourselves in a very different situation than we were six months ago. So, but maybe we can talk about that now and, and go through how you've you've repositioned the portfolios. Sure. So maybe just to take a step back over the last couple of years, we've really been focused on some imbalances that have been building in the uh, global economy. And one of these key things that we've been focused on is corporate leverage, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about later. But the key thing about these imbalances is that we believe that it's really a, a signal that um, an economy is late cycle and susceptible to shocks. And you know, certainly our base case scenario was not that there would be a pandemic that would result in a sudden stop of uh, the economies worldwide. <laughs> but because of our defensive positioning coming into the year, uh, we were actually very well positioned um, for the spread widening event that peaked uh, during the month of March. And as you can see here, uh, if you look at the different strategies that we manage, for example, uh, the corporate bond strategy, uh, the risk in the portfolio as of December 31st, uh, 2019, uh, was about 89% of that of the index. And we use DTS as a proxy for risk. Uh, as of June 30th, that number was at 108%. So we clearly have added a fair amount of risk into our investment grade portfolios. Uh, with regard to our high yield portfolios, they were even more conservatively positioned at about 70% of the risk of the market uh, coming into this year. And uh, as we think about it today, we're now in the low to mid 90s in terms of risk relative to the portfolio. So. It's really just a, a question of what is the right compensation in the market to actually be adding risk back into portfolios. So, so you've added duration risk, um, but what about credit risk? I mean, I guess there's, there's like two ways of approaching this. Either you 
go down the capital structure in the in the names that you know and i guess that's a bit easier because yeah. the due diligence work is already done or you bring down your average if you're doing that uh, adding risk <laughs> um by by bringing new names but i guess that's more work so which path are you taking <laughs> Yeah, it's a good question. With regard to credit risk, one of the things that we always focus on is leverage. And yeah, I think this is an important thing to consider that leverage was actually at an all-time high for investment grade companies uh, coming into this economic dislocation and actually at 2009 levels for high yield companies. And that resulted in almost a trillion dollars of triple Bs that had balance sheets that looked to us much more like high yield companies. And given this dynamic, uh, there's been a, a quarter of a billion dollars of fallen angels. And this has really you know, had an impact on both the investment grade and the high yield markets. And what you can see here is actually the impact on the high yield market where uh, double Bs as a percentage of the market have actually gone from about 40% or less than that you know, 20 years ago to now approximately 60%. And we really think that this is just a indication of you know a higher quality market um, that has certainly felt the impact uh, from the fallen angel dynamic that I mentioned previously. So with regard to our overall framework for adding credit risk back into portfolios, we've sought to take advantage of uh, opportunistic situations related to forced selling or uh, significant new issue concessions in the market. Uh, as you mentioned, Paul, we've looked to purchase issuers um, moving down in the capital structure from secured bonds to unsecured bonds or senior bonds to subordinated bonds. And then finally, uh, we have sought some of those new opportunities where uh, valuations are attractive. And with regard to uh, some of the strategies that we manage more specifically in investment grade portfolios, we've really continued to look to avoid uh, those fallen angel type situations. Whereas in our high yield portfolios, we've actually been adding aggressively uh, to those types of names. So it's really a dynamic uh, process that we've applied with regard to adding credit risk back into portfolios. So um, you mentioned just in passing there, talking about uh, leverage and you know the, the fact that companies are putting on more and more leverage and actually read, uh, I think on Bloomberg, they were saying it was the busiest June ever uh, the yep. company's raised 45 and a half billion in, uh, in the month. Um, how, how do you assess that? And, and, you know, how, how do you see that going forward? I mean, is this going to continue to the end of the year? Yeah, I think with regard to the second quarter, you definitely had a period of outsized issuance, both in the high yield market, but especially in the investment grade market. So we would expect the rate of issuance to uh, slow down as we progress through the uh, rest of 2020. Uh, but with regard to uh, leverage as a whole for the economy, this is actually one of the things that we were focused on in terms of an imbalance that um, is still out there. And if you think about some of the programs that have been put in place, uh, they really encourage companies to actually take on more debt which is not necessarily what these companies need. As you can see, corporate leverage was actually at an all-time high as a percentage of GDP uh, coming into this period. And we think this is really important for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, if you look at companies in the US, there have been studies out there that suggest almost 20% of the companies are what they call zombies 
where earnings don't cover the company's fixed charges, meaning uh, their debt service uh, requirements as well as their uh, capital investment requirements. And we think that you know, those companies will certainly continue to uh, zombie on, if you will, uh, by- <laughs> Zombie apocalypse, is it? <laughs> yes, there will be a zombie apocalypse by um, adding additional debt to their balance sheets. But it's something that, as we think about businesses from a longer per term perspective, uh, certainly gives us pause. And the reason for that is that these companies, uh, because they have so much debt, they're unable to invest in either new products or uh, new capital projects that um, will provide a good return on investment. And as a result, uh, many of these companies are actually more susceptible to technological disruption from companies that actually don't have a significant debt on their balance sheets. So uh, when we think about this in terms of our philosophy and process, uh, these are the types of situations where uh, compensation for risk is oftentimes inadequate. Sounds to me like uh, you're making a very strong case for active management in this space. It sounds quite dangerous and, and actually speaks to your you know, winning by not losing uh, philosophy. No, that, that's absolutely the case. We think that um, certainly ETFs and other passive vehicles are playing a bigger role in credit markets. And that's something that we can take advantage of because uh, there will be uh, certainly periods of times where uh, these credits, which are zombie credits, um, will perform quite well. But ultimately, the fundamentals do matter. The, the basic credit analysis does matter. And um, over time, our process has uh, consistently been allowed us to uh, avoid those losers, as you, uh, as you pointed out. Yeah. So there was another point I wanted to, to raise with you, and that's uh, around ESG, because mm. um, certainly in, in Europe, ESG has been a, a big topic for, for many years and is just growing in, in importance. And, and actually, we've seen that, that starting to happen in the US as well. Um, but you guys are a bit ahead of the, of the curve because you actually run um, a US investment grade ESG strategy for us uh, as well, which we, we launched in February last year. Um, on the U.S. corporate market, how important is ESG analysis in, in, you know, as part of that fundamental sort of traditional analysis, and how do you integrate that into your into your process? Yeah, so Paul, we really believe that ESG is extremely important in terms of the types of risk factors that we look to identify, and in fact, uh, 15 of the 35 risk factors that we look at in terms of bottom-up analysis of companies uh, have an ESG orientation to them. And I think one of the important things here is that we're not new um, to ESG and ESG is not new to us. Um, it's actually uh, a process that's been incorporated into our philosophy um, for many, many years now. And I think one of the, the key things about ESG investing is that you know, it's always easy to exclude uh, a company based on the fact that maybe they're in an industry uh, that you're not uh, in favor of, um, that's maybe um, not, not friendly to the environment, for example, uh, such as the coal industry. Uh, but the real, the real art to ESG investing is actually 
trying to evaluate those companies that are in more of a turnaround situation. And uh, we believe that those actually provide the best opportunity, not only from an ESG perspective, but also from a broader perspective in terms of um, the total return potential for those types of situations can be quite attractive. So as we think about ESG investing, it's something that is part of our DNA. Um, and it's certainly something that is um, you know, a key contributor to uh, our, our performance over time. Excellent. Well, uh, with that, I think uh, we'll get just to the, the some of the key takeaways. Um, we have a slide here. Uh, yep, here we go. Um, so, you know, we were talking at the beginning um, about the, the fact that you're going to be sticking to your that process of eliminating uh, uncompensated for risk, uh, targeting that sweet spot, winning by not losing. Um, duration has gone up in both the US corporate bond and US high yield. And I think we saw there, you're actually ahead of bench with the investment grade and just a little bit behind on the, on the uh, high yield. If I read that right? You did. Good. <laughs> um, the same time, credit quality, you're seeing more and more double B names uh, in the market. Um, and yep. that's, that's having an impact as well. And then the corporate leverage, we saw that, that chart where you have the spike uh, in, in issuance. Um, so that's something that investors need to keep a very close, close eye on. Um, and then the ESG exposure is an additional risk factor to any portfolio, I, I guess. And um, so avoiding companies with, with low scores, low ESG scores, only it fits with your philosophy, but obviously it makes sense as well. Is there anything else you'd like to add before uh, we, we call it a day? No, that, that summed it up quite nicely, Paul. Great. Well, thank you to you both. Um, thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Joe. Um, next week, we will be discussing global infrastructure. Uh, global infrastructure is on many government spending agendas right now as a way to help sort of kickstart the economy. But it's also interesting because um, global listed infrastructure companies tend to have higher dividend yields um, and also there's uh, inflation protection characteristics within the asset class that make it super interesting. So don't miss that, whatever you do, that's gonna be a, a good discussion. In the meantime, don't forget to visit our Stay Alert microsite at nordia.lu and there you'll find all of the past interviews, podcasts, Q&A, and we will be uploading this uh, this discussion as well uh, in the next day or two. That's it for today. I look forward to seeing you next week.